0: Today we're diving back into the book of Revelation, and we're going to be looking at chapter 14. The title of the message today is The Blessed and the Cursed. The Blessed and the Cursed. So, Lord, as we're about to approach your word, and it's a passage of Scripture that is a difficult passage. It's difficult to hear. It's difficult to comprehend. It's difficult to think about. But, Lord, it is your word... And so what I ask is that you would bring some clarity to my thoughts and the ability for me to communicate so that that which is true of your word, we might understand and that in understanding it, we might act upon it. Lord, your word is eternal, and I pray that that eternal word would do its work today in Jesus' name, amen. Before we dive into this passage of Scripture, I think it's necessary that we just for just one moment, just recapture the context in which it is found. Specifically, the context of the 14th chapter is a, ty- a, a, a terrible period of suffering. It's, it's the worst suffering that will occur in human history. It's during the Great Tribulation. This describes a time in the future that's just prior to the bodily return of Jesus Christ to earth. It's a time when the unbelieving world will fall under the diabolical lie of Satan as he draws all nations underneath his spell. It tells us in Revelation 13:5 that the beast or the Antichrist was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise authority for 42 months. So we know that there is a period of time, a limited period of time when these things will be taking place. He will, res- he will succeed in receiving the worship and the devotion of the unbelieving people of the world. And those who would not take the mark of the beast, those who would declare their devotion to Jesus Christ and refuse to worship this world ruler will be killed. It is a period of the persecution of God's people. And it will be worldwide in scope and unprecedented in its intensity. For those of you that were with us last week as we reviewed the 13th chapter, we saw the counterfeit God beginning to emerge. We saw the counterfeit of the dragon, Satan, the false father God, the beast of the sea which is the Antichrist, which will claim to be the false son of God or the incarnate God of the beast, and the beast of the land which is the false prophet or the counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. And the reality of this evil, satanic, destructive rule begins to emerge. And we get to the end of that 13th chapter, and, and John, as he begins to write the 14th chapter, stops and says, now let me give you a view from another perspective. How many of you are glad from time to time we get other perspectives on things? And from the perspective of Revelation chapter 14... We move from this destructive scene on earth to a victorious scene from the perspective of heaven. In fact, it takes us from the earth back up into heaven. And, it's, and if you were to have seen any of the scripture as it relates to the installation or the inauguration of the kings, particularly the kings of Israel in the Old Testament, you would recognize that Psalm chapter 2 was a psalm that was often used in that particular time. And, and we see that lived out in this particular part. In fact, in, in Psalm chapter 2, verses 2 and then 4 through 6, it says this. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He rebukes them in His anger, and He terrifies them in His wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, I just want you to just take a deep breath because in the middle of some things that are gonna be difficult to talk about, it's nice to know that we have a God in heaven who looks at all of this and he just laughs at people. He just scoffs at the derision of of those that think they've got it all together and he, he is about to reveal why he is the king of kings why he is the Lord of lords, and why everything else falls so desperately short. And so from this heavenly view, within the 14th chapter, there are three distinct scenes that begin to emerge from this chapter. The first one is this, the Lamb and his people. In verses 1 through 5, it says this, "'Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion.' And with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like a roar of rushing water and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for for they kept themselves pure. They followed the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now, if you will put this into the context of where we have just come from in the 13th chapter that listed all the ways that Satan was trying to counterfeit God, we got to the end and it talked about his number being 666. And we spent some time looking at that because it indicates that 6 is an imperfect number. In other words, no matter how hard Satan and his counterfeit trinity try to exalt themselves, it's never quite good enough. Never quite good enough. He will never be able to compare to the glory and the power of the one true God. And then this is followed up with some deliberate contrasts in Scripture, having moved from chapter 13 to chapter 14. In fact, at the verse, chapter chapter 13, verse 1, it says this, and the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Now, you'll remember that beginning scene as he was getting ready to to have the Antichrist or the second beast come from the, the water, When you contrast the beginning of the 13th chapter to the beginning of the 14th chapter, this is what you see. The lamb in the 14th chapter is standing on Mount Zion. In other words, it's the comparison of one who has the vantage point of victory standing on the solid rock of a mountain versus that one who is standing on a seashore and on the sand. Now, for those of you who have been Christians for any length of time, you will remember that we used to sing a song that was in our hymn book, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. All other ground is sinking sand. So we are given this distinction in these two chapters of Revelation between the best that the kingdom of Satan can do is build his kingdom on sand, temporary, shifting, not good enough, versus the very beginning of the 14th chapter which declares the Lamb of God is standing on the mountaintop of Mount Zion, victorious and on the solid rock. That's the contrast that John has in mind. It is a picture for us of the stability or lack thereof of the two kingdoms that are represented to us in Revelation. In this big heavyweight championship of the universe, the lamb versus the beast... From the human eye, it looks like the lamb has no power and no choice, but the lamb is on the top of the mountain. How many of you are glad that God does not leave us in the valley, but he begins to say, stand up and begin to make your way to the top of the mountain. We are about to have a view of all of this that is different from those that have to live there. We may be walking through the valley, but we are not staying in the valley because we are following the lamb to the top of the mountain, the mountain of God. And there we will assemble with the Lamb. And in this picture, there's the spiritual reality that what is unseen by our human eyes, what is in the spiritual realm is actually the reality, and what is in the physical realm is merely temporary. The Scripture goes on to describe that standing with the Lamb are those 144,000 who had His name and the Father's name written on their forehead. If you remember back to Revelation chapter seven, we visited this number 144,000. In fact, we spent two weeks talking about the difference between is this a literal 144,000 or is this symbolic of the entire multitude of all of the believers of all time? George Wood believes that the 144,000 that is mentioned here is a scriptural or a spiritual reference to all of God's people, everybody who has ever come to know Christ From all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the end of time, that it is a representation of all of us who've been sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit, whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and that we are all there, and that it is a number that cannot be counted. It's merely symbolic. Twelve, we know, is a heavenly number. It's a number of completion. So twelve is always the number of God's people. Twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve sons of Jacob. Twelve apostles. Twelve times twelve multiplied by a thousand seems to be an apocalyptic way of, in the, in the Hebrew way of, of saying this is the complete number of God's people that we are all included within this. And then there's this deliberate contrast between the mark of the beast Versus the mark of those who have been marked with heaven or the mark of Jesus and the Father. What is being described for us is we know that when we receive Jesus as our Savior, when we come to him and acknowledge him, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. He takes up dwelling within us. We may not see a physical seal on our forehead, but we know that he says, I know those who are mine and I have sealed them. We also know, according to chapter 13 that those that will refuse Jesus as Savior will be sealed with the mark of the beast, an actual mark on their forehead or on their hand. And so we see the contrast between those that are sealed by God and those that are sealed by the beast. In other words, you only have two choices. You will belong to Christ or you will not. So many people have asked during this study, how can I know... How can I know that I'm a follower of Christ? How can I know that I'm all right? How can I know that my my salvation is secure? There are five things that are mentioned within these verses that give us the marks of what a believer looks like. Number one, they're marked with the Father's name. In other words, we've been sealed with the power of the Holy Spirit. Something takes place in your life when you receive Jesus that gives you a peace that cannot pass. Understood? It just, there's a peace in your heart. You know something changed. The dwelling, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit changes the way you see life and the way you see yourself because you just know something eternal happened in you. That's the mark of the Father upon you. Not only do we have the mark of the Father through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but the scripture also says they sing a new song. In fact, there's two different songs that are mentioned in Revelation. One song is the song that gives God praise because he's the creator. That's an eternal song. But there's a new song that we are given and it's a song that we give when we praise the Lord for what he has done at Calvary for us. When we get saved, we have a new song. Now, how many of you will be singing the last song that we sang this morning for the next three days? Because it just, it locks in your mind. We are singers. I, I believe that part of the joy of the Lord comes in the way that we express ourselves in song. Do you know that this is eternal and it's put within your heart and that there's going to come a time when we will be in a choir with everybody who has ever been saved and we will all be singing a song of testimony to God for what he's done for us. Now, here's the interesting thing. Everybody's testimony and everybody's verse will be different. The testimony that I will be singing of is that I have been blessed Beyond belief, to have been born and raised in a home where God was honored. My father and my mother prayed for me every day, and so during my formative years, their prayer was one of protection, that I wouldn't fall to the scars that so many carry in the world. So my song will be one of great protection, as I have grown. Others of you will have songs of deliverance. Others of you will have songs of chains being broken. Some of you are first generation Christians, and your marriages will be the first that didn't end in divorce. Some of you, your songs will be that of how God took something that had been inherent in your past, and he broke the chain, and in you, it's brand new. Every one of us, born again, will have a new verse that we get to add to this precious song of the saints. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt, it said they sang a new song. You want to know why? Because they had never been delivered before. It was the first opportunity for them and so they were able to sing a new song and you and I will have a new song that we will be able to sing with our distinct voice to God himself. The song of the redeemed will have many verses and we'll have plenty of time to sing it. Oh, by the way, those of you that don't think you sing very good, you're gonna sound great (laughs) when you get to heaven. It's difficult to imagine a believer who does not enjoy singing and enjoy singing their testimony. The third thing that's mentioned here is how do we know that we are believers? They are identified with those who have not defiled themselves. In the Scripture, it talks about defiling themselves with women, for they are chast or they are virgins. Now, you need to understand that when you take this 144,000 And if you have to look at that literally, then people... This is a really, really difficult passage to look at literally because then you are looking at this as 144,000 Jewish evangelists during a tribulation that, that have basically never got married is the way that would be discussed, which is interesting because... Throughout Scripture, marriage is always held up as something to be desirable. But if you look at this and interpret it symbolically rather than literally, then you can begin to understand why in the Old Testament Israel was called the virgin daughter of Zion. You can understand Paul when he talks in 2 Corinthians eleven two about promising those that he is teaching to one husband, to Christ, that he might present us as pure virgins to him. So here Paul is using the term virgin, not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense that we have been purified, that we are righteous before God, not because of us, but because of his robe of righteousness that he places around us. And we think of the struggle when you put this back in the first century context, the the seven churches that these letters were written to. They were constantly in a temptation to adulterate themselves with with heresy that was going on in their cities. They were constantly tempted to adulterate themselves or or to back out of their spiritual fidelity and, and renounce Christ because of the persecution that was going on. But the Scripture indicates that these people did not lend themselves to those, to those tendencies, but they kept themselves pure. They were pure before the Lord. And so how do we know that we are right with God? We are not giving in to the voices of the world that's going to try to tell us that Jesus is not who he said he is. We are not giving in regardless of what you say or do to us. We are not giving up the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. I am not giving up the hope that he alone has made me righteous by his blood and not by my own deeds. And so we will not defile ourselves. The fourth thing that's mentioned here is that there's a quality of total loyalty. It says they follow the lamb wherever he goes. Now, you can almost visualize the lamb on Mount Zion, and, and he's also called the shepherd of the sheep. So wherever the this, this shepherd lamb goes, there, the sheep go with him. And so it's this beautiful picture, and it's important for us to capture this because We often want to follow the shepherd into heaven, but here's the thing. The writer of Revelation means for us to understand this. If you don't follow the lamb on earth, you're not following him to heaven. If you won't follow the shepherd now, then you won't follow him there. The first call that Jesus gave when he was gathering his disciples was to follow me. In fact, in the very first chapter of John's gospel... John likely, when he became the youngest disciple, was probably either in his late teenage years or maybe 20 years old. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, come and see. And, and, and it says, John, at about four o'clock in the afternoon, heard those words from Jesus, dropped what he was doing, and began to follow Jesus. And now John in his late 90s, after having followed all these years, said, I am still following the Lamb. And as you look back over his life, he had followed the Lord to the cross. He'd followed him to the resurrection. He'd followed him to the Mount of Ascension. John had followed him through the great Pentecostal experience and the birth of the church. He'd followed him into the dispersion of the world. he followed him to Ephesus where he became the pastor of the church. He had followed him to Patmos where as an old man he is there in exile. And soon John knows that he is going to follow him right into Zion itself. You see, he had followed the Lamb wherever he went. So having done that on earth, it was going to be easy for him to follow him into heaven. The characteristics of those who follow the Lord today are the same. We don't know where he's going to lead us. I don't know what the future holds. I just proclaim to you, and I believe that you likewise agree with me, that it doesn't matter where the lamb leads. We're following the lamb. Because as we do, he will lead us not only here on earth, but he will lead us right into Zion. So follow him. That's one of the characteristics of those that know that they belong to the lamb. The last one that's mentioned here is that they, they have a true confession of their faith. Revelation 14 says, at the end, no lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now, we need to balance that blamelessness with the support of Scripture, which indicates to us that you and I are not perfect. You and I are not blameless by nature. In fact, it tells as we cross-reference that with 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So what he is saying is as a result of the forgiveness of the Lord, we can live as if we have never sinned. That is the justification of God. I want you to know something. That is unbelievably more valuable than anything we have on this earth, that when God looks at me, I've been justified by Christ as just as if I have never sinned. And so the confession of their lips was to be, I will remain pure. I will attempt to follow the Lord with all of my heart, and I will not be afraid to declare that Jesus is Lord. You've just come out of the 13th chapter where everything is a lie. The false prophet's a liar. The false Holy Spirit's a liar. Satan is a liar. His whole job description is to kill, to steal, and destroy. And then you come to the 14th chapter, and in a new perspective, John says, the way that we know you're the people of the Lord is that we will not be afraid to tell the truth as it relates to who Jesus is. So we go over these points and we ask ourselves these questions. Are we part of the redeemed company? Those that are standing with the Lamb on Zion? Are we marked with His name? Do we sing a new song? Are our lives marked by loyalty? Will we follow Him both on this earth all the way to heaven and is our confession a true confession? And then... Paul moves, or or John moves into another section of this passage where we find in verses 6 through 11 this, three angels and their final call. It says in verses 6 through 11, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. "'Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water.'" A second angel followed and said, "'Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, "'which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries.'" A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, "'If anyone worships a beast in his image "'and receives his mark on their forehead or on their hand, "'he too will drink the wine of God's fury.'" which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's command and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. Any of you that have ever flown on an airplane recognize that just before they close the door, there is somebody at the desk that comes on and says, final call. Final call for flight 777 to heaven. Now, I've never been on that flight yet. I will be taking it someday. But I want you to understand that in this middle passage here, that's kind of what is happening. There are angels that are kind of giving a final call, a final attempt, the last attempt of God at, at reaching mankind. And so they announce these things. And the first, announce, the first angel comes with this announcement. He calls us to worship God as the creator. Now, here's what you need to know about angels as it relates to their ministry in Scripture. Angels do not proclaim the gospel. They do not proclaim the gospel. They allow men and women such as us to proclaim the gospel. In fact, in Acts chapter 8, there's this really fascinating scripture with Philip who is, the angel is directing him to be in a desert road at just the right time. A chariot comes by. He runs up to the chariot. And all of this is set up by the angel, but Philip had to be the one to actually share the gospel. And then after Philip baptizes this Ethiopian, instantly he is transported from a mud puddle in the middle of the desert, and he's standing dripping wet on a street corner in Azotus because of the ministry of the angels. But men and women had to be the ones that proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we see this angel flying midair, giving a call, you need to understand that The gospel that is being proclaimed here is not a gospel witness to win souls, but it says in verse 7, the angel saying, Fear God, give him glory, for the hour of judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs. In other words, this angel's ministry is to declare that our God is the creator of all things. It's fundamental for us to acknowledge that God is creator. It's Scripture's way of saying, listen, you will never be open to the perspective of God being your redeemer if you're not open to him being the creator of all. Until you know that he is Lord of lords, king of kings, the creator of everything, you will struggle with making him savior. And it's one of the great lies of our age because We have so many people that are attempting to put creation into a a kind of thing that it was a process that started in the distant past and and origins that we may or may not know. And it, it passes under the guise of respectability and intellectualisms. But here the scripture is saying when it matters... And when things are at their worst, there's an angel crying around, flying around, crying out, you need to own me as your God, as the creator. You need to know that nothing happens on earth that I haven't planned because I've created it. I own it all, and I am in control of the process. The second angel then begins to give a call that announces the fall of Babylon. Now, Babylon is going to be very, very important in Revelation as we get into some chapters that will be beyond this. In fact, in Revelation 17 and 18, we're going to deal specifically with Babylon and what all that means. But you need to know that in Genesis chapters 10 and 11, Babylon was introduced, and it was a city where the Tower of Babel rises. It it was a city that called itself the Gate of God. But in a marvelous play on words, the Scripture reminds us that Babel means total confusion. So you have them... Thinking themselves as the gateway of God, and God's looking at them going, you guys are all confused about all of this. Interesting enough, in the history of the creation of the city Babylon, it was founded by Nimrod, and his name means let us revolt. At the very heart of man's system against God is this picture of confusion and revolt. And this angel comes to say, those days are over. No longer will there be confusion. No longer will I allow man to revolt against the creator of the universe and the one who will conclude human history. Babylon has fallen, the angel cries. And then the third angel announces eternal punishment. Here is where our culture clashes so badly with biblical reality. Our culture, who are deceived by Satan's lie, says... The true Jesus isn't like that at all. I mean, God is love. God, God is love. God, is, God so loves everybody that it doesn't matter how you live or what your choices are here on earth. At the end of it, God's gonna be like a grandfather that just forgives everybody and everything and says, oh, okay, come on in. That is a lie. That is a lie that culture believes. And as a result of that, we are in a state in a day and age where everybody believes that does not know Jesus, that everybody is going to be okay. Yet in reality, Jesus talks about hell more than anyone. He talked about the fire of hell more than anyone in Scripture. Jesus is constantly warning us, not only am I a God of love that reaches out to redeem you, however... Humanity, in your choice, you need to know that if you do not choose me, you will remain in your sin, and I will judge it. The reality exists that God came to seek and save us from our sin, and that the penalty of our sin, if we ignore him, is eternal loss and eternal torment. There are those also that will say to you, listen, when you die, it's over. Nothing happens after that. You just cease to exist. Scripture is very clear that when you die, you will be one of two places, and your soul will live forever in the joy of eternity with Jesus Christ or in the punishment, eternal punishment, as it is described in Scripture, in the pain of burning sulfur. I want you to understand that what is being elevated here is God's absolute hatred of sin. You see, we classify it. There are those things that we think God really, really hates, but then there's those other sins that we think, eh, it's not a big deal. The God of the Bible tells us that if you're guilty of the smallest one, you're guilty of all of them. That we enter into this life with a guilty nature. And by virtue of that, we are born into a burning house. That the only escape from that house is through Jesus Christ, who has run into the burning house and offered us the opportunity to get out through the only way of escape that there is, and that is found in Jesus. And so when we look at this from the perspective of heaven, we begin to recognize Jesus isn't sending anyone to hell. Jesus is trying to have you escape from where you're already going. And so he offers you the opportunity to step out of the fire and into his grace. And it's described to us in this way. The wrath of God, by the way, is, is judicial in its nature. It, it, it's judicial from the perspective, and, and, and we'll get into, by the way, next week we're going to combine two chapters together because I really don't want to preach about the wrath of God for a long time. But it's judicial in the sense that we even noticed it in Scripture. Did you notice that we as the believers are not going to watch them burning? It says the lamb and the angels will watch. Because it's a, it's a judicial nature of the Lord saying, I gave the opportunity and you ignored me. So as a judge that proclaims your guilt, because we've been justified, those of us who know him, those of us who don't have not, and will carry the weight of the guilt of their sin with them before him. And it says that he will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb and the smoke of their torment. This is a picture I would never want to have to put in front of you. The smoke of torment that will rise, notice, forever and ever and ever while we who love the Lord are enjoying the presence of God in heaven, those who have ignored his salvation will be in eternal agony forever and ever and ever. And so when we look at the wrath of God and we see the torment, it's not occurring in the presence of the saints. It's the lamb and his angels. And this judgment is used by John in another call to the saints, knowing that the fire which is forever can consume, yet it never consumes. And so he's saying to us in this day and age, and though it may grow difficult for us to serve him, he said, Jesus said, fear him not who can harm the body, rather fear him who can harm the body and the soul into hell. So John is encouraging those who are struggling on the mountain to get up to the mountaintop of Mount Zion that in the course of going there, should your life be required, gladly give it. Gladly give your life for the cause of Jesus Christ. Because in a moment it's over and you're in the presence of the Lord forever and ever. And one glimpse of his face will take away any pain that you ever experienced here on the earth. And that leads us to the final portion of this chapter when it talks about the harvest of the earth. In verse 14 it said, "I looked, And there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, with a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, "'Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe.' So he who was sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the cluster of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle on the earth and gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and the blood flowed out of the press rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1600 stadia. John concludes with a picture of the harvest of the earth, of those that are left on the earth that have not bowed down to the beast, and then those who are harvested in judgment. In fact, we see this liken in Matthew 13 when he calls the field of the world, calls the world a field, and he said, at the end the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all the causes all those that are living for his cause will be gathered up. The rest of them will be thrown into the furnace of fire. So Jesus compares at the end of this chapter the harvest to the gathering of the wheat and the blowing away of the chaff. But it is also mentioned here that the harvest of grapes is certainly a figure of the judgment of God. It describes this in, in such graphic detail that the blood that is flowing from those that are being destroyed in God's wrath, that the The blood will flow equal to the bridle of a horse. And it's a symbolic way of saying that the carnage and the devastation that occurs as the era of the earth comes to a close, as God closes human history. It probably is a reference here to Armageddon. And this conflict does not take place in heaven in the city of Zion. It is outside of that. It's rather taking place on earth. And just to give you a sense of scale... Blood flowing to the right to the to the bridle of the horses would run for us, as it is related, 184 miles, which is literally the length of Palestine. J.B. Phillips tells the story of harvest in England, and he says, I I see so many similarities. He said, When it's harvest time for the corn in England, there are thousands of little tragedies that take place. He said, The victims of, of this tragedy are charming little thing called field mice. He said, earlier in the year when the corn was growing, it seemed to be an ideal place for them which to settle, to bring up a family. They had food. They had shelter. They had all the nesting material they needed. Everything was in abundant supply. Everything seemed perfectly adapted to their need. Their happiness was complete, they thought, until the harvest. For when the day the owner of the field steps in to harvest his field, everything that they had put their security in suddenly disappeared and their lives ended Everything that they had felt was so snug and secure disappeared in an instant when the harvest came. The field, he said, is likened to us as the world and all that belong to it. There are so many that are living in this world, they think we are perfectly satisfied with everything that the world provides for us. We look around and say, this is as good as it gets. We've been made to be happy. How many times do we hear people say that? I deserve to be happy. Without an understanding that the owner of the field is going to harvest the earth. And that this world is not our home and we do not own this field. Because this earth belongs to God. He created it. We belong to God because he purchased us. Your choice is you can choose to receive him or you can choose to ignore him. But I will tell you. The harvest of the earth is going to happen the end is near and it's possible that you may allow yourself to be deceived because you haven't seen God put in an appearance yet it's possible for you to get so caught up in what is going on here and all of the provision that you forget that the greatest power you have today is your power to choose It's your power to choose and you may believe in your heart that this earth belongs to you and anything that you can get from it. But J.B. Phillips asks at the end, are you a mouse or are you a man? Are you deceived or are you with God?